Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. It's, uh, it's interesting to me how direct these commands are, uh, how, how short some, especially this kind of second half of these 10 rules. If you've been with us, we've been thinking um, about the Ten Commandments, uh, this class is classic piece of Scripture, uh, and, and just been thinking about them, even in terms of, of words, what they mean, the, the ten words. And there's, we're calling this the rule of faithfulness. You shall not commit uh, adultery. There was an essay uh, that was written, you know, about nine years ago or so uh, in the New York Times. Uh, and even though I read it a long time ago, it's, it's really stuck with me. Um, it was written by a woman named Wendy Plump. Um, and she had both had an affair and had been the victim of an affair. And so the whole article is about marital infidelity, and um, it's a fascinating article. It's so honest, um, and I think that's really the reason I've uh, remembered it. Uh, It's so raw. Um, She says in the introduction of her article, I've had an affair, and I've been the victim of one. When you unfurl these two experiences in the sunlight for comparison, the measure of their worth and pain. The former, having an affair, is only marginally better than the latter. And both, frankly, are awful. Uh, the article is called A Roomful of Yearning and Regret. And she really spends most of the article talking about these experiences, what these experiences are like. And at the end, she says this, and again, I just found this so striking. She says, I look at my parents and how much simpler their lives are at the ages of 75, mostly because they haven't the marred landscape with grand scale, they haven't marred the landscape with grand scale deceit. They have this marriage of 50 some years behind them, and it's a monument to success. A few weeks or months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. If you imagine yourself in such a situation, where, where would you fit an affair in neatly? If you were 75, would you rather have years of steady, if occasionally strained devotion, or something that looks a little bit like the Iraqi city of Fallujah, cratered with spent artillery? From where I stand now, it all just looks like a cheap hotel room, whether you're in that room to have an affair or to escape from the discovery of one. And despite the sex and excitement or the drama and the fix of everyone's empathetic attention, there's no room, there's no view from this room that's worth having. You know, it's interesting uh, how unsatisfying so many accounts of, of adultery are, and how many scars they leave, and yet, obviously, people keep doing it. It continues to be a problem. It, it, this, throughout this series, we've been reading a book by Kevin DeYoung, also called the Ten Commandments. Uh, And he begins the chapter this week on uh, the Seventh Commandment uh, in a place that I was pretty familiar with. He actually has done a lot of research. Um, He's also, maybe he's completed, and I think he's completed now his PhD, and he's been working with 18th century um, church life. And he talks about reading through some of the old church books, the 18th century, 1700s. And in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, you know, 20th century, this century, uh, marriage and sex and the complications with those things 
has always been a part of human behavior. And it's always been a part of church life. It's always something that as pastors and elders, churches have dealt with. It's certainly something that I have dealt with. And it's probably not going away, the complications with this. You know, there's an explicit part of this command. You know, if you are married, don't cheat on your spouse. Don't have sex outside of marriage while you are married. If a married couple cannot trust one another, if they can't be committed to one another, then how can they have a family, right? How can they have a relationship? And if you can't have marriage and you can't have a trustworthy relationship between husband and wife or father and mother, then how can you have a society? So there's an explicit part of this command that's, that's very important, but there's also an implicit side of the command. It speaks about design. The reason that having sex outside of marriage is a big deal is that sex is a big deal. The reason that having sex outside of marriage is a big deal is that marriage is a big deal. So today, I want to do my best with you to answer three massive questions. Now, these three questions really shouldn't all be together in one sermon. And so forgive me, but we've got a lot of work to do. But I, I figured this, was, this would be the best place, at least for an introduction. And all of this is going to deserve a follow-up. I do just want to uh, point out to you uh, in your bulletin, at the very bottom there, we have the text to pastor line. So anything that I say that you have a question about or disagree with, or maybe something I say that you like, you just want to get more information on, uh, you can always text me and ask that question. And we'd love to discourse with you about that. Or you can just like come up to me. Um, but if you're more of like non-direct uh, contact guy, please text. So the, the three questions are, what is marriage? What is sex? And why is sex outside of marriage such a big deal? What is marriage? What is sex? And why is marriage or why is sex outside of marriage such a big deal? So let's begin. What is marriage? And really the 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 opening question here, I like definition. And so let's let's look at this definition together. Marriage is a whole life, lifelong covenant made between one man and one woman meant to display Christ and the church. This relationship produces true companionship, mutual sanctification, and godly offspring. Now we're going to read that definition several times, so let me just keep moving. This is a big definition. There's a lot of parts to it. So let's begin with a part of it that obviously has been talked about a lot in the past decade or so, that marriage is this covenant between one man and one woman. Why is this so important in the Christian definition of marriage? You know, I was just thinking today, you know, it's, it's hard to believe it's almost been four years since the Obergefell decision uh, that, of course, uh, legalized same-sex marriage in America. And, of course, during the debate, I, we heard a lot from Christians about why homosexuality was wrong. But what you didn't hear a lot about was why heterosexuality was right, right? Why is this part of God's design for marriage. Why is this so important for Christians? Because obviously you can still have monogamy in a homosexual relationship. There can be deep love between two, deep and committed and faithful love between two men or two women. So why is this out of bounds for marriage? And again, I think that we have to step back to the implicit nature of God's design 
If you go back to creation, the creation account, throughout the creation account, we see this phrase over and over again. And it was good. It was good. It was good. The Hebrew there for good is tob, which means right or beautiful. Good, right, beautiful. This is, there is something right about what God is making. But then in Genesis 2.18, there's, there's, there's actually a shocking passage. This is before sin. This is before the fall of man. This is before anything was distorted in the world. And the passage says, it is not good. It is not tob. It is not right. It is not beautiful that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, verse 19 is very helpful here. He says, now out of the ground. Now notice this. Out of the ground. This is important. The Lord had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what the man would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and every beast of the field, but for the man, but for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. This is important. God had made everything out of the ground. And of everything made out of the ground that God had made, there was not a suitable helper for Adam. But what does God do? He doesn't go back to the ground. No, look at verse 21. It says, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman for the man and brought her to the man. So what does this mean? Now, a lot has been said, of course, about Adam's rib, but, but what is God trying to communicate to us in this story? There's three theological truths here that I think are incredibly important. And again, all of these deserve more time than I'm going to give them. But here are these uh, real quick. The first is that the woman, it's important that the woman was, was taken from Adam's rib, or was made from Adam's rib, because it's displaying that the woman is fully and equally human. She's made of the same substance, if you will, as the man. She is bone of his bone. She is flesh of his flesh. She is equally image of God, even though she is different. She is equally, she has that high status of image of God, even though she is something else than the man. Number two, there's a lot to be said there, but we've got to keep moving. Number two, and this is important. God made the woman from the man for the man. This shows that God had in mind for marriage a complementary and dependent relationship. This is not another independent person made from the dirt, made from the dust. No, this is a woman. This shows that the nature of marriage isn't two of the same things having an intimate relationship. It's two different things, man and woman made from the same substance, yet different in their form. Now, I, I just want to say that two of the same things, having an intimate relationship, is a good thing, is part of God's design. Two men and two women having an intimate relationship is important. We call this friendship. And this is an important part of the human experience. And, and, and ultimately, I believe that Homosexuality is actually more of a distortion of God's design for friendship than it is a distortion of God's design for marriage. 
most of the people that, that I know, that I'm friends with, that, that are in homosexual relationship, there is a deep longing for friendship. There's a deep longing for male interaction, or if you're a female, for female interaction. And this is a good desire, but it's just not marriage. It's not designed to be a sexual desire. Genesis 2 teaches us that the man and the woman are from the same substance, yet they are not the same. God took something from the man and made the woman. There is a complementary nature in this. And this is God's design for marriage. This is why the Bible says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. There's a complementary nature to this. Men and women together can, only when men and women come together, can, a, can really a new family be born. It's something that's part of God's design. A man can't create a family by himself. A woman can't create a family by herself. Two men or two women can't create a family by themselves. But when a man and a woman comes together, there is something ontologically complementary right about that, that the miracle of life can happen. A new soul can come out of such a union. We got to keep moving. Finally, and there's so much I could say about this one too, but God made the man and the woman a different person out of the same substance, made to join together to display something of the image of God. Our very ontology reflects God. It is like the ontology of God. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, same substance, three persons all one. Man and woman, same substance, different persons coming together, not to just be aside one another, but to be one unified flesh. Notice the pattern of Genesis 1, 27 and 28. It said, God created the man in his own image, image of God displayed in man. But then he says, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God is creating, God is ruling, God is showing his dominion over the earth. And so what does he do? He creates image of God in male and female together. And then notice verse 28. And God blessed male and female, made in the image of God, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, etc., etc. Only a man and a woman can be fruitful and multiply and thus subdue the earth, and thus fully display what it means to bear image of God. Now, I know many people disagree with this biblical definition of marriage. Some of you may disagree. But I just want to say, before you kind of write God off as harsh or judgmental or this rule maker, see him primarily less as a rule giver and more as a designer that's trying to create something that is orderly and beautiful and actually reflective of his very nature. So marriage is a whole life, lifelong covenant made between one man and one woman meant to display Christ in the church. This relationship produces true companionship, mutual sanctification, and godly offspring. So you may have noticed that I say here, marriage is whole life, lifelong. You might be like, well, Jason needs to 
work on his definitions there. He's repeating the same thing. Well, I mean different things by this. Marriage is whole life. Let's look at this next part. Meaning that there is not part of you in a marriage that is left out. Marriage isn't a sexual contract. It's not, a, it's not just a spiritual contract. It's not just a parenting contract. It is a whole life contract, meaning that every part of you is joined, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, financial, parental, everything. Marriage is a whole life union. As the text says in 2.24, Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus, of course, repeats this command. He speaks very clearly about what is and what isn't marriage in Matthew 19. Jesus says in, in Matthew 19, four through six, repeating uh, God's creation command in Genesis two, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, this is actually where a, a little understanding of the language is incredibly helpful. There's two words that we see throughout the New Testament used for flesh. Now, it's not an exact science. Actually, there's a couple of nuances as you read Greek in these words. But typically, and I believe fundamentally, soma, the first word that we see translated as flesh, refers to kind of the trunky part of the body. It's the fleshy part of the body, right? Uh, your flesh, your, your, your uh, physical being, if you will. But there's also a word translated for flesh that is sarks. And sarx is not just the physical, but, but it's the whole person, the, the whole of a person, their whole ontology, their spiritual, their mental, their emotional, the whole personhood. And this is the word that Jesus is using here. The two shall become one sarx. This isn't just the two shall become one soma, right? The two are physically joining together. That happens. But, but Jesus is saying more than that here. He is saying this is a whole self-donation. Marriage is a whole life donation. It's bigger than just a physical unit. It's a whole self oneness with another person, the spiritual, the mental, the emotional. It's a whole self donation to another. It's so much more than people just being physically joined. They're joined in every way. They're no longer two sarks. They're no longer two people. They are becoming one new person. This is the, this is the weightiness of marriage. And of course, he goes on to say, what God has joined together, let not man separate, which gets us to the next point. It's a whole self, lifelong covenant. Now, again, whenever you bring up marriage, there's a lot of questions about divorce. Again, I don't have time to get into divorce today. But I, I will say just very quickly, I, I do believe there are biblical grounds for divorce. Jesus and Paul both speak of this. But Fundamentally, hear this, when thinking about marriage, Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And what so often is the pattern of divorce? God joins them together, right? People go to a church, people go to a pastor to get married, 
And then they go to a man, a judge, some court system somewhere. They get away from the church. They get away from God to get a divorce. And so I just want to say to you, if you're married here today, if you're struggling in your marriage at all, go to God to pursue marriage. Go to God to keep the marriage strong. Go to God if the marriage needs to end. Don't run from the church in times of marital strife and struggle. Don't run from the accountability of Scripture in times of... There are grounds for divorce. There may be... There are reasons that people do need to be separated, but don't run from God in that. Run to God. Run to accountability. Run to your pastors. Come and see us. This is one of the reasons that we just brought on a full-time biblical counselor. This is one of the reasons that our elders try to take such care of the congregation. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So marriage is a whole life, lifelong covenant. Now, what is a covenant? Now, covenant is a binding relationship. It is not meant to be broken. It's not established on the basis of an exchange. It's established on the basis of position. Some of y'all were here a few weeks ago when I talked about Imriana playing soccer. I don't love Imriana because she scores the most soccer goals. Okay? In fact, she hasn't scored that many goals this year. I love her because she's my daughter. She has a position. It's not a marketplace relationship. It's a covenantal relationship. She is my daughter. And in that position, in that covenantal position of daughter and father, I love her. We get this with covenant. We understand covenant with our children, right? You know, I, you know what kids are? You know what kids do? Kids are expensive. And kids are messy. You know, Paige, Paige is wanting, she said yesterday she wants me to get her a new car. She's, the, the, she's saying, I, I, the minivan's just getting run down. And I looked at the minivan. Well, you know, half of the problem is that my kids destroy the minivan. That, that's what kids do. And you know what they do? They do, they never say thank you, right? They destroy your stuff. They spend your money. They rarely say thank you. They break your hearts. Right? People say, oh man, just wait till they get in high school, right? The emotional strain, right? But I've, I, I mean, in very rare occasions, you never hear of a parent abandoning their child, even though there's very little marketplace good in the relationship. Why? Because you get covenant with your kids. They're, they're, when they are born, you realize I'm their father, they're my child. Well, this is, what happen- this is what's happening in marriage. She is your wife. He is your husband. It's not a marketplace exchange. It's not, it's not, I will love you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, you know, as long as you love me like that too. It's not, I'm going to love and cherish you and take care of you and protect you as long as you love and cherish me and protect me and do all that. You hold up your side. That's not what marriage is. It's a covenant. You're, you're changing position. That's why it's a very big deal to be pronounced husband and wife. Status change, position change. You come into a covenant with one another. You're making a promise to be there, to hold fast, no matter what the circumstance. Marriage is a whole life, lifelong covenant that is meant to display Christ and the church. Again, this is a very important thing thing to understand in marriage. There is design in marriage. Ephesians 5 
31 and 32 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage from its inception, when God created marriage. In the same way, you know, we, we talk about how you see Christ in the Old Testament. In the same way that when Abraham spared Isaac, uh, and God provided a sacrifice in the same way that we're supposed to see the gospel in that. When God created marriage, you're supposed to see the gospel in this. From the very beginning, God had in mind to, through marriage, display the gospel. It was supposed to be an image. It was supposed to be gospel representation. I, I told some of you uh, last week that I actually got to go to the Grand Canyon about a week and a half ago, and it was a, this amazing experience, and I love being there. I've been thinking, I can't stop thinking about it. Well, you know why I wanted to do that trip so bad? Well, part of the reason is Ansel Adams, and ever since I was like a freshman in college, I would go to the poster store, poster sales at Haley Center, and I would see these Ansel Adams pictures, and I'd say, what is this place? I want to see this place. I want to be a part of this place. What I mean by this is the image drew me in. I saw an image and it drew me to the real thing. That's what marriage is. It's a picture of Christ and his church. It's a picture of the gospel. So if you're married, if you're single, if you know someone that's married, this is really important. Your marriage is a picture of the gospel. It is gospel representation. And that's why caring for marriage, protecting marriage, pursuing one another in marriage is so important. Marriage is a whole, I wish I had more time on that. Marriage is a whole life, lifelong covenant made to display one man, made, uh, made between one man and one woman, meant to display Christ in the church. This relationship produces true companionship, mutual sanctification, and godly offspring. We're doing a whole series on marriage actually in the fall. So this is just a taste. This is like the preview uh, for that. But there's several fruits or goods of marriage, true companionship. When you really find uh, a relationship with one another within the safety of a covenant. You can have a relationship with them, a true companion in them, like no other relationship. It also produces mutual sanctification. You know, you are not perfect. I am not perfect. And as we go into marriage with that mindset, it is so good for our souls. A husband or a wife will sharpen you and, 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 and sanctify you in such a powerful and good way. And lastly, marriage produces godly offspring. One of the goals of marriage, and not every marriage produces offspring, but one of the goals of most marriages is that godly children will be raised up and the kingdom of Christ would advance. So what is marriage? Marriage is a whole life, lifelong covenant, made between one man and one woman, meant to display Christ in the church. This relationship produces true companionship, mutual sanctification, and godly offspring. All right, that's marriage. A lot there. All right, let's move on. What is sex, okay? Well, simply, sex is a sacrament. Now, as Protestants, we're like, I don't know really what sacrament means, so let's talk about it. A, a sacrament is a physical sign of something spiritual, right? So baptism uh, is one of the sacraments that we celebrate, right? The water has no intrinsic power about it when you're baptized. But it's a sign, it's a physical sign of death and resurrection, of a spiritual death and a spiritual resurrection 
that has happened in the life of the person because of the power of the gospel. It's a physical sign of something that's bigger than that, of something that's more than that. And that's what sex is. Sex is the sacrament of marriage that physically points to the whole self-union between the husband and the wife. It is given to humanity for pleasure, honor, intimacy, procreation, and holiness. Now, the Bible speaks a lot about this. It's, it's interesting, you know, we, we, a lot of, oftentimes modern people, 21st century people, look back at the Bible as so primitive. It was written in this day when everyone was obedient. And if that's kind of your pr- perspective of the Bible, you have no idea when the Bible was written. Uh, the Bible was written in a pagan culture, the New Testament at least, in, in a very, a very, if you would call sinful or, or sexually liberated culture. And, and kind of the, the Las Vegas of the Roman culture at that time was a place called Corinth. Uh, just to kind of help you understand what was going on in Corinth. Do you have a picture here, I think so? Okay, so Corinth is right here at the beginning of the Pelop. This is called the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And the seas around Peloponnesia were so rough, they were so toward that people didn't want to sail around here. They would sail through... Um, here. But of course, nowadays, actually, the Greek government has built a channel. There's actually a, you know, a channel that runs through here. Back in the first century, there was not a channel. And so literally, these seas were so rough that literally, in order to not lose all the goods at sea, ship captains would pull into here. They would unload the whole ship. They would carry the ship over this road called the Dialcos. It's like less than a mile long. It's not a very wide uh, isthmus there. And, uh, but it took a long time. You know, there was, a, there was always a line. They had to unload the whole ship. So you can imagine what was going on in Corinth. You pull up the ship, you pull up the shore. These guys that have been at sea for months, they said, all right, guys, you get three days off. Here's a bunch of money. Go enjoy yourself in town. So I don't have to go into details of what was going down in Corinth. And it was like, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And it's in this context amongst massive prostitution, rampant gambling, rampant sex, I mean, all this stuff that was happening there in Corinth, that Paul writes these instructions to the church there in Corinth. And he says in 1 Corinthians 6.13, the body was not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Paul does something incredibly important here to understand human sexuality. He connects the body with the Lord. He is saying that your body is important. Now, we have been affected by Platonic thought. You remember Plato, the physical is only a shadow of the real. Remember that? Remember the chair? That's all, maybe not. But anyway, The physical is only a shadow of the real. And Paul says, no. In Christianity, Christian is so different than ancient Roman thought. Christian says, no, the body is actually itself important. The physical is actually itself important. That's one of the reasons that we believe in a physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not just a spiritual resurrection. It's this statement that the physical is important. Our ultimate hope is in the new heavens and the new earth, in the resurrection of the body, where our souls and our bodies in the new heavens and new earth will be joined in a physical reality. Paul is saying the body is important. 
what you do with your body matters. And your soul and your loves and what you believe should not be separated from your body. What do you call it when your soul and body separate from one another? What do we call that? Death. When your soul and your body separate, you die. And this is what Paul is saying here. Your body is important. What you do with your body matters. Remember Sarks and Soma from before? Remember those words? Soma, trunk part of the body, Sarks, whole self, all of your ontology, all of who you are. Look at verse 15 here. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies, soma, trunk part, fleshy part, are members of Christ? Your body's important. Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one soma, body, fleshy part, okay? The bodies are coming together. But then Paul switches it. This is fascinating. He says, for it is written, the two shall become one sarks. You see what he did there? When the soma come together, the sarks comes together. When the body comes together, there's part of your whole self that comes together. When you have sex with someone, there's, there's really no such thing as casual sex. The, the nature of sex, the nature of the body coming together is a whole self donation. This is why when people are having sex, they feel compelled to say, I love you. I'll be with you forever. I'm your, they, they feel compelled to give themselves emotionally to the person. Why? Because the soma and the sarks are together. They are connected. The physical union points to, it's designed to be a sacrament to point to the whole self-union. The sarks and the soma are joined, and they should not be and cannot be ripped apart. Which brings me to the third major point today. Why is sex outside of marriage such a big deal? It's a big deal because it's violent. It rips apart the body. It rips apart body and soul, and we call that death. This is why Wendy Plump in the New York Times article that I mentioned earlier said that even when I was committing adultery, it was miserable. It didn't satisfy. Sex is a sacrament. It's a physical representation of something deeper, emotionally, spiritually, this physical union that, that points to a whole self-donation. This is why God designed sex. And when done within the context of marriage, it is beautiful. It is right. It's, it's like baptism. It's like the Lord's Supper. It, it, it renews the covenant. But when done outside, it destroys. Let me show you one other passage. This is 1 Thessalonians 4. It's a very helpful verse here. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. The text says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust 
like the Gentiles who do not know God. There's two words in this passage I want you to pay attention to. The first is the, the word honor, holiness and honor. It's the, the Greek time. And the second um, is this kind of phrase here, the passion of lust. We'll get to it. It's epithemio. But honor, honor. Within the context of marriage, sex is meant to be a covenantal good. And within the covenant, sex can be exchanged with joy and with honor to one another. It is life-giving. It's healing, actually. It is such a gift. And, and, and for those of you who are married who enjoy that, you, you, know, what, you know what I'm talking about. I, I remember, I, I didn't really think about this a lot until I got married. And I remember going home one day. I, had, I was pastor of First Baptist Church in Covington. And we had had this deacons meeting where I just got destroyed, you know. We were changing a lot in the church. Everybody hated it. The guys were just slamming me. And I went home so empty, so discouraged. My mind was filled, you know, with all this. And I get home. And I hadn't had dinner yet. And we sit down with Paige. We get dinner. And she starts kind of giving me the signal, you know. And uh, I think, oh, you know, things may go well with me. <laughs> and, and in the covenant of marriage, in the context of that covenant, she, she brought, she teammate me. She gave me life. She gave me strength. And I'm not talking about like I did some recreational thing that got my mind off of it. It wasn't that. It was, it was a donation of herself to me. There was a strengthening that took place. She reminded me of the covenant that we have. She reminded me that she's in this with me. There was a celebration of our union there. And it honored me. But the other word here is epithemio. Passion of lusts, epithemio. And it, a, a, a more literal translation of this is greed. In fact, you actually see the same word in Matthew 5. It says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent, it's the same word, epithemio. Everyone who looks on a woman with epithemio, everyone who looks on a woman with greed has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, sex was designed for marriage. It was designed to be a covenantal good. And when done within the security of the covenant, there is honor and there is joy. But when done outside of the covenant, when done outside of the covenant, you're saying, I will give you with my body what I'm not willing to give you with the rest of myself. I'm willing to be greedy to get this with my body, but I'm not willing to give that to you with the rest of my life. Sex is reduced to a marketplace good. What do you do in the marketplace? You know what you do in the marketplace? You give as little as you can to get as much as you can. That's good business. That's a good deal. And that's what sex outside of the covenant of marriage is. It's been reduced from a sacrament to marketing. And that's why, you know, if you're having sex outside of marriage, and I want to challenge you here, you always have that fear of, well, I hope I'm better than the other partner. I hope he doesn't meet anybody better. I hope she doesn't find anybody better than me. You're always having to market yourself. There's no security 
It was never meant to be out there. It was only meant to be within here, within the covenant of marriage. Sex can either be honor or greed. So this command, you shall not commit adultery. Of course, this is one of these commands, though, that Jesus doubles down on. He says, of course, in Matthew 5, you shall not commit adultery, you've heard it said, but I say to everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. (laughs) And then he goes on to say, after saying something that all of us are guilty of, after saying something that condemns all of us, he says this, verse 29, So then if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go to hell. Jesus obviously is using metaphorical language here, but he's saying two things. First of all, you should treat sin very, very seriously. Don't mess around with sin. Don't mess around with the judgment of God, Jesus is saying. But he's also saying this. He's saying no one is without sin. (laughs) None of us here have lived up to this standard, not having lust in our heart. And And if we thought that the cure for sin was cutting off our hands, then none of us would have hands. And none of us would have eyes. And you know what? we'd all still keep sinning. We'd be eyeless and handless and still as wicked. What good would that do us? Ultimately, this this drives us to this great hope that the only cure for sin is looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, is looking to Jesus and knowing him and being known by him who, who loves you and cures you and sanctifies you makes you right, brings you back into his design. That's what Jesus wants to do for all of us. That's what Jesus wants to do for your heart. You know, when a couple stands before one another when they get married, they probably have shared with one another some of their past sins when they've forgiven one another, right? I mean, they're they're getting married. But when you get married, you don't assume that those past sins are gonna keep on going, right? You assume the best. You say, I got him fixed. He's going to be good. I got her right where I want her. She's going to be great. You assume that the future is bright. You assume that all is going to go well. That's what you assume when you stand there at the altar. But how many marriages would ever happen, (laughs) do you think, if the man and the woman could see the future? And they could see, you know, one day this guy is going to cheat on me. That's going to crush me. One day this gal is going to, she's going to be gossiping about me all the time with her friends, putting me down. One day she's going to be unfaithful. Her mom is not going to be less a part of our relationship, but more a part of our relationship. You know, one day he's going to fail. One day she's going to do this. Man, if you knew everything that's going to happen, what's going to happen in the future of your marriage, there's not many marriages that would make it. But here's what I want to say to you today. The amazing thing about the gospel is this, is that in the gospel, Jesus stands before you, knowing everything that you've ever done. He knows your whole past. He knows what your heart is thinking right now. 
He knows how you're responding to his word. And he knows everything that you ever will do. He knows all the times that you won't take his word seriously. He knows all the times that you should be cutting off your hand. He knows all the times that you'll be faithless, that you'll betray him, that you won't be faithful to him despite his incredible faithfulness towards you. Jesus knows all of that. And he still says to you and to me through the cross, this is what the cross says, I love you and I want you to be my bride. And I'm willing to bear. This is what the cross says to you. I'm willing to bear everything that you have done, everything that you will do. I'm willing to bear it. That's a covenant. That's a covenant of love. And if you believe that, if you believe that you've been loved like that, if there's been somebody that's been that faithful to you, that's pursued you like that, that will change your heart. That will make you new. It'll make you a new creation. That's why we call it a new birth. It revolutionizes you. It brings you into holiness. It brings you into faithfulness. So let's look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faithfulness, as we pray. <sighs> Father, I, I come before you um, as a man who has not loved well you and has not loved well the people that have loved me, my family, my, my wife, my children. I've been faithless in so many ways, selfish in so many ways. But Father, I thank you that you in the cross have taken all of that sin on and you have pursued me, Lord, and you are pursuing me even now. And you're pursuing these men and women now. So Father, I pray that their hearts would be soft and that they could see how deeply they are loved in Christ. They could see how faithful you are to us, Lord. Father, heal us by your mercy now. Heal us by your gospel. Give us faithful hearts. Give us obedient hearts, hearts that love you, that love your design, that desire to see your beauty. And I pray all this in the strong and good name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.